You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 19. So information theory is a field of mathematics and statistics that was essentially invented by Claude Shannon. He made up, you know, he came up with the initial concepts, he worked through the results, he worked through all the implications, and he just dropped the whole thing on everyone's lap and said, have fun, and everyone was blown away. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Local Maximum. I'm Max Sklar. Thanks for your emails. Um, If I haven't responded yet, I promise I will get back to it. The address is localmaxradio at gmail.com. If you want to email the show, I appreciate the feedback. If you're enjoying it, please leave a five-star review whenever platform, uh, whatever platform you like. It's free. I'm not asking for donations right now, so... A good rating will go a very long way. You know, uh, iTunes is a good one, SoundCloud, all that stuff. Now, some of you have said that you like the learning aspect of this show. You can listen to it on your ride home from work uh, or walking to class or, you know, whatever you do. And you could be entertained, but also learn something that you didn't know before. Could be about AI machine learning, uh, could be about emerging technology you know, smart contracts, blockchain, Bitcoin, all that stuff could be about anything, any sort of information. And that describes today's show in multiple ways, because today we're talking about information itself. We talk about information a lot as a, as a, as a society, as humans. In fact, it's the 315th most used word in the English language, according to some website I pulled up. But I'm sure it's true. I'm sure it's true. But You know, what is information really? Physicists have their own definition of information. In fact, they talk about the conservation of information, that it could never be destroyed or created. Uh, Maybe true for the universe as a whole, but doesn't conform with my personal experience. I'll tell you that much. Uh, Then we have the colloquial definition of information. It's the news Uh, You know, all the information, all the time. It's what we get on the internet. It's what you're listening to right now on the local maximum. And it turns out, you know, there's an entire theory on information out there. It's called information theory. Uh, It was invented by a man named Claude Shannon at Bell Labs many decades ago. And I'm going to discuss this field with my former colleague at Foursquare, Daniel Kronovit, who has given a talk on the subject and has read extensively on it. And the way I think about it uh, is that the information content of a message is the minimum number of bits required to send that information to someone. So if we use the term, you know, low information content as a pejorative, it means that there are a lot of words, but the stuff we actually wanted conveyed could have been said much more uh, succinctly. So, you know, and of course we learned today, I, I learned in this discussion that this is not entirely true because it's hard to reconstruct all the fluff that someone gives and that's random noise and the fluff itself is information. But I guess uh, when we're using low information in the pejorative sense, we're talking about the key points that someone really wants to get across. So so that's what low information content is. Um, I don't know... I don't know what that was about. I don't know why I care all about that. Is this whole podcast just a long-winded, you know, low-information way to figure out how to properly insult someone's content? You know, I hope not. Uh, another key term that we're going to cover today is uh, the entropy 
of a random variable, which is the expected amount of information uh, of in that random variable. So the expected amount of information when you roll that dice, so to speak. Um, now this stuff gets very complicated. So just you know, I got a little confused in our discussion on Huffman coding. Um, I left it in though, and I want to clear that up at the end because I did a bunch of reading and you know I have a I have a clear sense of what's going on. Okay, so now about my guest, Daniel Kronovit is a data scientist with a focus in machine learning and a special interest in voting and governance. He currently is working as a blockchain engineer at Colony, an Ethereum startup. And before that, was a machine learning engineer at Foursquare, with me, of course. Uh, he has an MA in math and computer science from Columbia, and a BA in political economy and cognitive science from UC Berkeley. All right, Daniel, welcome to the show. Welcome to the local maximum. Thanks, Max. Good to be here. How are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while since you like skipped town. What's up? Yeah, I fled the country uh, maybe a month and a half ago with <laughs> Israel. Um, things yeah. are good. I mean, the first the first week, couple weeks were a little difficult. You know, didn't have an apartment, wasn't working, felt a little vulnerable in a new in a new spot. But you know, a month and a half in, I have an apartment. Uh, I'm working. You know, making friends. So I've, I feel I feel a little bit better about the whole thing. You know, like we'll see where it goes. Sort of. Kind have of you? Left yeah. Is this yeah. your first time living? This is not your first time living outside the country, is it? Um, this is my. Not my first time. I mean, I think it depends on, on what you mean by living. Like I spent a year, oh, okay. <laughs> I spent a year abroad a couple of years back. Um, but that was a series of like a few months here, a few months there. You know, I spent two months in Mumbai. I spent um, six months in Israel. I was on a kibbutz. I lived in Jerusalem. So I, I definitely traveled for a long period of time outside of the country. Um, but this is the first time where I am sort of setting up shop for an indefinite period of time outside yeah, of the country. So that's, yeah, so that that's novel. Um, so, yeah, and I, I kind of feel like, you know, on one hand, compared to the past, I have a skill set and I feel like I'm like a real adult, you know, with a profession. And so in a sense, that's very enabling because I feel like I, I have agency and I'm somewhat independent. On the other hand, I feel like, you know, I'm not like 22 anymore. So, you know, I'm like not going out and like meeting people at parties. I sort of feel like the, like, I feel like socially, like I'm a little bit more settled, which... In New York, you're always going out meeting people with parties. Doesn't matter how old you get. This is, I guess, this is true. I remember that that was happening up till the end. <laughs> Someone was telling me how you know. I'm like, oh my god, every night something's going on. I'm going out. They're like, yeah, that's only in New York. You know, in the suburbs, people are just at you know at home. Mm-hmm. I hear that. And here it's here it's pretty vibrant. I think that I think that I'm trying to. Well, you're I think in Tel Aviv, right? I'm in Tel Aviv, and I'm sort of trying to find my people. I feel like if I reflect on my time in New York. One thing that I did a lot, I put a lot of energy into was kind of going out and trying to meet people in, in a variety of different milieus and scenes, sort of very intentionally trying to expand my horizons, which was on one hand, yeah. like a good thing. And I'm not going to say that was a terrible thing, but in the end, I spent a lot of time and energy hanging out with people who I really wasn't clicking with. And I wasn't willing to like accept that. I think that I thought if I just tried harder, if I tried harder, I could make it work, you know? And now I'm like, okay, you know, I have my quirks and strengths and weaknesses i'm not going to be everyone's friend so let me let me try to find my crew and the people that i vibe with and like spend time with them and everyone else can be a bonus but like it's important to build that home base yeah yeah that remind. well last night i uh you know i was flipping through the channels and i saw the movie uh, yes man with uh, jim carrey have you ever seen that i i have not is that the one where he like 
decides to spend a year saying yes to everything and it changes his life? Yeah, yeah. And okay. I, I haven't seen it's it's 10 years old. I haven't, uh, you know, I hadn't seen it for, uh, I think I saw it either when it was in theater or right when it came out. But, uh, you know, I, I was just, uh, I was watching that and I was like, and so, yeah, the idea is he takes it to such an extreme that it, it becomes too much, but he gets benefits out of it where, you know, he's going out to different groups and, and, uh, and parties and learning different things that he wouldn't otherwise do. And it, and it ends up helping him out in, in strange ways. And uh, I was like, Hey, that's a good philosophy. I mean, you know, the movie is the comedy is that he just, he takes it way too far, but uh, <laughs> I think, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed watching that again. I, I was like, Hey, that's uh that's uh that's a good, I, uh, that's a good way to like, you know, uh, expand your horizons a little bit. I hear that. I feel like I feel like with everything, there's a sort of there's like a there's a there's a dialectical type tension, or ultimately you have to like you have to walk the middle road where you know who your friends are and who your people are, and you really appreciate and spend time with them, and you push your boundaries, you know, here and there to always see what's going on. I feel like it's almost like a exploration exploitation trade off type situation. You know, you always want to be exploring new things, but you also want to exploit the things that you found. Yeah, you know, I mean, hey, like, that's what this show is about. This show is called the Local Maximum. We're trying to. Uh, get every hopefully every episode is a new local maximum because we jolt people out of it. But you know, 100%. Way to, way, to, way, to, way to be on brand. Well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I you're involved in a lot of things that I think we can turn into a podcast episode here. But I wanted to start with um, information theory because I know that uh, you gave a talk about it uh, when we worked together at Foursquare uh, and something that's interest that's interesting to you. It's not, uh, it's a field that's really fascinating. I don't think it comes up as a topic of discussion enough among, you know, data scientists and machine learning engineers. So, uh, let's just start, you know, give me a little bit of background on what is information theory and what is it that interested you about it? Totally. So information theory is a field of mathematics and statistics that was essentially invented by Claude Shannon in uh, I think it was the 40s or the 50s. Okay. Um, and when I say invented, yeah, so it's, it's pretty old. I mean, so Claude Shannon, who's one of my favorite um, mathematicians, one of my favorite, I guess, figures in the history of computing, um, he was a mathematician. He went to MIT in Michigan, and he was a key researcher at Bell Labs um, when they were developing the transistor, and they were really you know, laying the foundations for early computing. Um, and so he, he's, he was first well known for helping formalize the development of circuits. So like logic gates, NAND gates, AND gates, OR gates. He, he, really, he really formalized and said that we can, we can work out the logic on paper and then implement it in circuitry um, in right. a consistent way. Because before very that- Very early days of computing. Very early days. Because before that, it was very ad hoc. Engineers were just like implement circuits. However, they made sense. There was nothing standardized. And Claude Shannon said, actually, there's a relationship between, you know, we, we can formally symbolically work out some logic problems and then implement them in a computer. And that was actually his master's thesis. Um, so even before he finished his PhD, he had done that amazing work. Wouldn't and it be then nice after- to have a master's thesis that is like, <laughs> that is, I can't think, you know, coming up with a master's thesis now is like, ah, this is never going to be like a whole new field. This is just, uh, you know. It's uh, imagine having a master's thesis that it, that's like that. That's uh, the basis of whole new it's, fields of 
it would, it would be a dream, you know? And I, I, the question is like, was he just singularly brilliant or was he also, you know, was his timing good? You know, like, yeah. I think a lot of academics now sort of feel like, you know, they wish they could have been around a hundred years ago where there were just far fewer academics and there was a lot more, you know, it was a lot easier to make great breakthroughs. Now it's almost like you're kind of scrambling for like your little niche. Um, yeah. Yeah. There so are some, but yeah. hundred percent. It's hard to um, find. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so he, so he did that. And then after his PhD, he went to work at Bell Labs, um, which was like, you know, the, the, the AT&T research facility, which was really one of the, the most, the biggest and most influential research organizations in the world for many, many decades. Um, and so he worked, he worked there on also computing. But the thing is, information theory was not a part of his job. He, it was actually something he worked on on his spare time. So he would go to Bell Labs and, you know, do his math and work on transistors. Then he would go home and like make a cup of tea and like work on information theory. And then when it was done, he basically just wrote it, he wrote it all up in a book and just dropped it in everyone's laps and said, here's a field I made up, you know, have fun with it. You know, he, 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 he no, really, like he, he made up, you know, he came up with the initial concepts. He worked through the results. He worked through all the implications. He like worked through all the examples and he just dropped the whole thing on everyone's lap and said, have fun. And everyone was blown away. It's I can really, see why you like this guy. That's like a, that's a, a dream for me. Yeah, he's he's a cool guy. He's yeah, he's he's yeah, um, really really an, an inspiration. His his creativity, um, his energy is yeah, he's he's cool. He's a cool guy. It's worth some someone good to look up to if you have to pick someone. All right, all right. So we still haven't gotten into like what is information theory? When he dropped all of this this new field on everyone's lap, uh, what did it say? What was the main idea? Right. So, so the main ideas are he was able to take the language of probability and statistics and work out concrete applications for computing. So things like data compression, things like sending information across noisy channels. He was able to take, the, take ideas from probability and basically say that you know, if you want to build these computers um, and you wanted to have these properties, these are, these are the limits that you're going to run into. You know, if you have a channel that has this much noise, it's only going to be such and such useful. You know, if you have some events that you're trying to communicate, like, you know, language or the outcomes of horse races or the outcomes of whatever coin flips, what have you, um, and your, your goal is to do it efficiently, then it's going to look like this. Um, and so he provided a language for, ta- for reasoning about communicating compressing, moving information around that was directly linked to the statistical properties of the things you're talking about. Um, and so I think it was that link that allowed us to take these sort of abstract, you know, like mathematical ideas and then very concretely say that it's going to mean this, that, and the other for computing. So I, I think, I think you know, so it was, it, it was a language to do that. Um, and the fact that he was able to take this really sort of elegant math and, 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 give us really, really, really useful concrete applications, uh, I thought was very exciting. Yeah, yeah, very cool. What? Let's see if we can think of an example. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned horse racing. Why don't we go into that? What would be, what's the example that you have in mind? Sure. So, so the example that we would give with horse racing, and this is specifically an idea of Shannon's called Shannon Coding, which is say you have an outcome, say you have a, a thousand horse races okay, and you want to communicate to you know, a reporter in another country who won the thousand races. Say it's a, 
you know, say you had a, a mega horse race tournament and you needed to communicate across the world how to do so. And let's say that, you know, you were, you needed to communicate this very, very efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you have, let's say you have four horses and you have to decide how do we communicate? How do we communicate the winners? Um, right. You know, the so four horses, you could have two bits to describe every horse. So you could have, you know, horse one is zero, zero. Horse two is zero, one. Horse three is one, zero. Horse four is one, one. You know, so, every, so every race, um, the outcome would be two bits to send it across the wire. So for every race, you send two bits, which is the winner. And, and there we go. Yeah. And, um, you know. and so, however, what, what Shannon showed is that if we know that some horses do better than others, then we can actually do better. We can do better than two bits per horse. Um, and this is this relates to the idea of entropy. Now that's pretty surprising is, because you'd think that, um, well, this is a pretty compact way of of putting it. The two bits. You think, but yeah, it is, but we can we can do better. And the idea is that say the idea is that first of all, if all four horses are equally likely to win, we actually can't do better. And this this right. gets into this is some this is some of the real fruit of information theory, um, is that the, the, the sort of the, the, the probability of one horse or another winning tells us how well we can do to communicate the results, right? If okay. all four horses, you know, so, so like, let's think about this horse race as a, we have a, a so the, the winner of the horse race is a random variable, you know, it takes on four values, you know, A, B, C, and D. And if the distribution is uniform over the horses, every horse has an equal chance one in four of winning, then we can't do better than two bits per race, um, there's no coding scheme that we can come up with that will let us do better. Also, for a discrete distribution, the uniform in which every outcome is equally likely is the maximum entropy distribution. You know, before the horse before the race begins, we know the least about what's going to happen if every horse is equally likely to win. Right, right. right. And so right. How- and and well, I'll have you continue, but uh, I, I know where this is leading, where the amount of bits you have to send is in some way equivalent to the amount of information you're conveying. Exactly. Um, so yeah, con- continue. Yeah. yeah, all right. So, but now let's say that we have four horses, but, you know, they're not all equally good. You know, okay. one of the horses is a, you know, is a, is a, is a paragon of, of breeding and is the fastest clearest side horse that the world has ever known and it wins you know twice like as often the guy as just won the triple crown who was that exactly uh, i don't remember uh, what oh, was no, it it was a uh, justify there we go yeah exactly yeah. so one of them is justify um and it wins you know i don't know four times as often as the other horses and you have another horse which wins pretty often the two horses which win least of all right okay. so now the distribution is not uniform now horse a justified is actually very likely to win. Um, you know, horse B will say American Pharaoh is pretty likely to win. And the other two horses are like not really winning that often. Okay. Right. So now the entropy of the horse race has actually decreased before the race is run. We know a little bit about what's going to happen, or at least we know more than if every horse is equally likely to win. Right. Um, and something that should be pointed out is you still have the same number of possible outcomes. You still have four outcomes, but uh, the number of outcomes is not necessarily the same as how much do you know about the outcome. Exactly. Um, you know, another way to think of it is, say we had a horse race where three of the horses actually never made it out the gate and only one horse 
could actually run. You know, we could run the race as many times as we want, but really we would learn nothing. You know, if, yeah. if you ever, if you have four horses and only one horse runs um, and you know which horse that is, then there's zero entropy in the horse race and you actually don't even need to have the race. You don't you already need to know. send any bits across the wire. They could already, exactly. they already can write the news story the next day. Exactly right. Um, and so this is the link between how uncertain the probability distribution over the event that we care about and how easy or difficult it's going to be to communicate about it down the road. Right. And so going back to the, the coding example, because this is a, you know, I want to bring this point to, to a close. Okay. Um, so, so let's say that instead of having two bits for every horse, we could say that, you know, um, Justified, who is the, the winningest horse, actually, if Justified wins, we send one bit across, we send a zero. You know, so a zero means Justified wins. Right. And um, so, if, so every time Justified wins, we send, off, we send one bit. And then if it's another horse, then we'll have like one and then another bit, right? So maybe Justified is zero. And then one zero is American Pharaoh. And then one, one, zero is one of the other horses and one, one, one is the third horse, right? So if one of the two bad horses wins, we have to send three bits. If the medium horse wins, we send two bits like we did before. But if justified wins, we send only one bit, right? So now we have a coding scheme where some horses require more bits than the other, but because in the long run, justified is going to win so often that we're going to send fewer bits at the end. Right, so over a thousand races, if we have this new coding scheme, we might actually be sending less bits over the wire to communicate the same information, which is the outcome of a thousand races. Right, and right. so this is one of this is one of the the fruits of of Shannon's work is that based on the probability of events, we can actually devise coding schemes uh, which are more efficient, which communicate the same information more efficiently um, than if we were to do something naive. Um, and it's these ideas that have been adopted all throughout computing, um, you know, telecommunications, uh, compression, that have allowed computing to be as performant as it is um, in a variety of real-world settings. Right. Now, one of these encodings uh, is called Huffman coding, and I bring it up because most computer science uh, undergraduates uh, learn how to do Huffman coding. It's very similar to kind of the horse race example that you just gave, so maybe mm -hmm. I'll put a link to it. Um, and, um, it's, I'll, I'll also throw a link to it cause it's a pretty easy one to understand and wrap your head around. I know that, uh, you know, Huffman coding is pretty good, much better than choosing, you know, uh, a constant number of bits, but, um, exactly right. it, it's not optimal, right? It's, um, uh, uh, Shannon showed, you know, what, what optimal could be like, what, what the limit is, is that, mm -hmm. is that, uh, the right way of thinking about it? Um, that's actually, I actually don't recall off the top of my head the difference between Shannon and Huffman coding and which one is better than the other. Well, I mean, Huffman um, coding is just, I don't think Shannon, I don't think Huffman coding is like completely optimal because it's only, ah, uh, I'll have to look this up, but I think, you know, it's only, it's discrete, right? You have to send a discrete number of bits, whereas... You can, when you talk about Shen, you can he, he, you can have like fractional number of bits. You can start talking about well, which is a little bit mind blowing, but yeah. So that is that is one thing that I would that, that is one thing I'm, I'm not I'm not sure if Shannon coding is is immune from this, but yeah. one point is that you know um, there's you know at the end of the day you can only, you have to send across a bit or no bit, right? right. So so th there's cases where there's you know 
for 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 some for, let's think about the case of a coin right you know okay. a coin uh you know a fair coin has one bit of entropy right you have a right. coin flip and you either send across you know a, a zero for tails and a one for heads right? Right, right and let's say you have a coin that's like not that's not fair where maybe it's 90 percent heads um okay. so that the entropy would be like 0.2 but at the end of the day you still have to you know you still have to send the bit across so i think that in, in practice you take the entropy and then you take the ceiling of the value and that's the number of bits you're going to need to use in practice um right right but there's a theoretical you know amount of information that is contained in the coin flip, whereas the 90% flip, the answer contains less information, even though you still need to send one bit across the wire. Yeah, so there's a little, there's a little bit of loss there because you know ultimately the bits you use are discrete, even if the entropy is maybe a continuous value. Yeah, yeah. So that gets into the inf- question of like, what is information? Is entropy kind of a, a measure of information content in a message? Uh, is that one way to think about it? Essentially, that's the way that that's the way that we're going to approach it. If you read the okay. um, the textbook on information theory, information is actually not it's not even it's not even used because um, information and entropy are proportional. The more entropy um, is in a distribution, the more information that we the more information we get when we learn the outcome. Okay. Um, so, but, so but, but words, really, if, yeah. In the case where all all four horses are about equally likely, that's a lot of information. But if one horse is almost certain to win then we get much less information from the answer. Exactly right. So, so they're, 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 they're related concepts. Um, and so when you're talking about one, you're indirectly talking about the other. Um, and, and what entropy is, is the uncertainty we have about the outcome of, of some event. And we can think of events very broadly. We can think of events as you know, strings of text. You know, in a sense, like a novel is a, is a statistical event. Right. You right. can draw and you can draw a novel. You know, I have X, which is a novel, and I draw it from an enormous distribution of all possible novels. Um, and we can discuss the entropy of a novel, you know, or even a word. Um, so, you know, we, we can think about this at a very at a, at a sort of a very high level. Um, and, and if we want to, I mean, that's not there's not that's not so actionable, but it's a one way to think about it. Um, one of Shannon's favorite examples is um, is the letter U following a Q. His point is that once you've seen the letter Q. Um, the letter U provides no information. Um, like the, if you think about uh, the two letter, um, like the, the bigram QU, it really right. provides, the, the U adds no information. The, the entropy of, of what happens after the Q is almost zero. Yeah. Or um, it's almost zero, right? There are some cases where it's not true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, in reality, we have ASCII where we... Uh, where where the u after the q is the same amount but i'm sure with compressed text that's not necessarily true so now it's interesting i want to um back up a little bit because we have information in the form of you know who wins the horse race but then we have information in terms of a a novel or a textbook which is you know it, i think it's i think it's interesting to people to think, okay, this is another example of the same thing we call information. Because, you know, in day-to-day life, we call both things information. But it's just that I think the difference is the 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 book, the novel or the textbook, whichever one, um, there are so many different possibilities. Uh, you know, all we're talking about all possible novels here and all possible outcomes to the story, maybe. And as you're reading, you're you're finding out, you know, the different outcomes. 
And so that's a lot of information content. One funny thing we could think about it is the way that maybe some books have more information content than others, you know? And like this gets yeah. into the idea of compression, which we can talk about, which I think is also very interesting. But you can imagine that like take a book that's very formulaic, um, you know, you know, like some, some, like some like, you know, adventure novel aimed at, you know, 10 year olds. Like I know I, I was a big fan of the Animorphs series as a child. So, you know, positive thing, but the books were a little formulaic. Um, some of them were at least. And um, as you can think, if you were to compress the Animorphs book, you could probably do so pretty well, right? Like, you know, what's the the major plot points? You know, what are the major conflicts? What what are the animals that they encounter? You know, like how does the how does the plot move forward at a high level? You know, you compress yeah. that into like a couple of points, and or then you just you say know, use this template, and here are some of the here are some of the things we plug in for the plot points. Like, you know, this, exactly. this template's been used a lot. Yeah. Exactly. And then you would, if you were to decompress that, you'd have the book. Um, but you could compress it into something that was very small. Um, then you think about another book that's maybe a little bit more innovative. Um, you know, what's a book that I liked? Um, the Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. You know, it's a, it's a mystery novel set in a monastery in, I think, Italy in the 13th century. Um, really interesting book. A lot of, like, a lot of weighty themes. Very clever. Um, and it, you almost, you almost, you really, I mean, to compress, like if you compress that book, you end up with basically that book. You know, there's there's not a lot that you can take out of the final book um, that would let you recover it after the fact. So, so if I want to write a book with high information content, it would have a lot of, you know, let's say plot t- twists that people weren't expecting. Um, it wouldn't follow the usual formula. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's a good book or not, but it would have high information content. It would have exactly. It would have high information content and high entropy, because there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens next. Um, and the only way that you can resolve that uncertainty is by having the book itself. Um, and I want to and like so I mentioned compression, and I, I want to get around to this point because I think this will really like tie up this point nicely. Okay. Um, you know, I think that something that people ask when they first learn about computers is, you know, why don't you just compress it again? You know, why don't you just keep compressing it until it's one byte? You know, why can't you just keep compressing the thing? Every right. time you compress I, it, I it's smaller. Pile. And then I could put that zip file in another zip file and uh, so on and so forth. Exactly. And I think I really love this idea because you know, at first it, it makes total sense why people would ask that. Um, but when you understand how compression works, it makes a lot of sense, right? You know, something is compressible when there are regularities in, in its structure, right? Because that's how compression works. You know, compression takes advantage of the structure of the thing to, to basically, you know, if, if the same word appears 10 times in a row... Instead of having that word 10 times, you just save the word and the number 10. And then later on, you can say, okay, word times 10, and now I'm just going to stretch it back out. And so, but when you compress something, the compressed form, there's no redundancy. Um, and so if you were to compress it again, you would get, you would get it basically back out because there's actually no, there's no more regularity um, that can be compressed. So something that's totally random, like random noise, cannot be compressed because there's no structure to exploit. Um, and so the, the entropy of a compressed file is basically maximal. Okay, now to wrap up, why don't we try to really quickly you know, uh, gloss over the equation here because the information content of something that you're saying is like the log of the probability of that event? Essentially, the way to think about entropy is it's, it, it is a sum of the interactions between how likely an outcome is and the log of that likelihood. Um, and, and really, we'll, if you want to think about entropy, the first thing to do is to basically just plot 
P of X times the log P of X to see what it looks like. Um, and what you'll see is that for very unlikely events, um, it's very small. And for very likely events, it's very small. But for events that are not likely or unlikely, it's, it's pretty large. And so if you have a distribution where there's one very likely event and a lot of very unlikely events, then the entropy will be small. But if you have a distribution that has a lot of events that are maybe likely, maybe not likely, it'll be large. Um, and so that goes back to with you know the horses, if you have one horse very likely and the other horse is unlikely, entropy will be small. If you have all the horses kind of the same chance, it'll be large. Um, but, but really it's an interaction between the probability and the log such that very likely events have a low entropy and very unlikely events have a low entropy, but events that are in the middle have a higher value. Let me try to wrap my head around this with like, uh, with an example. Let me try to repeat back to, not repeat back to you, but, but, uh, well, let me just say what I'm going to say. Uh, so the way I'm thinking about it is you have a horse who is almost certain to win and then you know, when they do win, you send that information off across the wire and you're like, oh, that's boring. You don't need a whole lot of bits. And that's what's probably going to happen. Now, let's say that you have a horse that is not at all likely to win. Then, yeah, you have to send a lot of bits across the wire when it does happen. But it's so unlikely. And, and you know, it's like, in, you know, everyone's amazed. But high information content. But that's very unlikely to happen. So, um we expect there to be low in information content just because the event is so unlikely. And so somewhere right. in the middle, you have, you know, high expected information content, high exactly, expected right. number of bits. Yeah. Right. And remember going back to how many bits we send across, right? If, if uh, justified wins almost every time, then we're only sent, we're sending across a lot of zeros punctuated by the occasional one, one, one. Um, whereas if every horse is equally likely, we're going to have to send across two bits every time. I gotcha. And part of the reason why there's that log is that, you know, as you, every time you add a bit, you have exponentially more, um, more options that you can encode. So, you know, the number of options goes exponentially with the number of bits or the number of bits grows logarithmically with the number of options. Yeah, it comes exactly right. Okay. So when you were giving the talk at Foursquare, uh, you had emphasized the dichotomy between measurement and processing. Uh, what is that and why is it important? Yeah, so this is um, this comes out of a result information theory called the data processing inequality. It's one of the first results. You basically define entropy and then you get this. Um, and what this says is that no amount of processing or analysis of data creates information that wasn't already present in that data. Um, what do we mean, right? Think about taking an average. You have, you know, you're trying to measure um, the height of a tree and you measure it four times and you take an average of those four numbers and you have, a, you have the mean, right? Right. Um, you know, what we realize is that, that the mean does not actually provide any information that was not already in the four measurements you took. If anything, you've lost information. You've lost information about the variance. Um, right, if you don't save what, the four numbers. Right, but what you have is something that is more useful. Right, a data set of four measurements is not actionable. You can't, you know, decide if it's bigger or, or smaller, if it's grown or shrunk compared to last year. But there, it is strictly more information about the tree, which is what we care about. Um, and so, I really think of a lot of this data work as consisting of, of two phases. One is the measurement phase, where you go out into the world and you try to to get something out of it that you can work with 
computationally, you know, because the world itself is cannot be analyzed. We have to measure it first. Um, and so you go out and you try to take a measurement or many measurements. And then once you have the measurements, you can analyze them with machine learning, with statistics to try to get something that you can actually make a decision, make a decision about. And I see a lot of, you know, a lot of energy and a lot of effort put on the analysis side. We have a data set. We want to, you know, model it. We want to develop, you know, products around predictions um, and, and, and so on. We want to provide services that are based on analyzing data to, to, to understand unknown quantities. Um, but I see less energy spent on understanding the measurements. And I think that right now we're starting to experience some of the consequences where people just take data sets and analyze them without really interrogating uh, where the data comes from. Or they take data sets that aren't really, don't have enough information content. You know, if, you, if your measurements are very noisy, then there's not enough information to really make sense of, no matter how good of an analysis that you do. People think um, that uh, they're going to, well, it's called data mining, right? You, you already have your data. You're going to mine through it and you're going to find gold. Yeah. And I think that, you know, very often there's information there, so it's, it's worth doing. Yeah. But I think the point is that, you know, if the data is not good to start with, if, 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 if there's not enough information in the data about the world that we care about, uh, no amount of analysis is going to get it out, right? Analysis, yeah, analysis is, is transforming or distilling information into a more refined format, but it, it is not creating information. So if your measurements are bunk, then nothing, then your analysis will not come up with anything useful. Um, and so I think it's interesting to think about what are we measuring, how are we measuring it, um, so that later on the analysis becomes easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there is room for being surprised as to what information is in your data set. Like you can you can you can be surprised that you can reconstruct you know information about someone based on some of their activity online, for example. Um, but uh, if it's not there, it's not there. Exactly right. Okay, great. This is a fascinating discussion. Uh, where can people go to get more information on the topic? Well, so there's two excellent references that I would recommend. One is the, the essentially the textbook, um, Elements of Information Theory. Uh, it's very well written. Um, you know, some chapters great for introduction, some chapters more into the details, but uh, you know, a, a great reference. And the second, uh, which is a, is a history book, it's called The Idea Factory. It is a history of Bell Labs, uh, which I read you know maybe two years ago and was great. So it talks about Claude Shannon and his work, but also uh, Shockley um, and a lot of the other really groundbreaking scientists that came through Bell Labs and talks about their work, um, historical context, their discoveries. Uh, so great reference. Um, I would really recommend that. All right. Thanks. And you've got actually a lot of interesting content out there. So where can people find more information about you? Yeah, well, Max, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I do try. Um, the first place I'd start is I keep a blog. Um, chronosapiens.github.io, uh, where I write about, you know, it used to be more technical essays about programming challenges. And in the last couple of years, it's shifted more into my general, like industry commentary, uh, different companies, um, some analyses of strengths and weaknesses, thoughts on market trends, you know, which when I look at Google, Google analytics get actually significantly less traction, but I'm near and dear to my heart. Um, so take a look if anything appeals to you, you know, um, give me some feedback, you know, you can look at, uh, yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Chrono Sapiens, basically just Chrono Sapiens everywhere. Um, yeah, I searched you on Google and then it all comes up. So, um, all this will go in the show notes page. 
thank you very much. Uh, this is a fascinating discussion. And I uh, hope you have to have you back on. Let's think about other things that we can talk about on the show. I would love that. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Max. I appreciate it. All right. Now, before we go, I want to clear up this whole Huffman coding, Shannon coding, and fractional bits business. So Shannon coding and Huffman coding both solve the same problem where you want to assign a shorter message to the most likely outcome. In the case we described, it's the outcome for the horse justify winning the race. That outcome should be expressed with a shorter number of bits and the other horse is a longer number of bits. Now, Shannon coding was the original scheme for doing this by Claude Shannon. It was improved upon a few years later in 1952 with Huffman coding. And it turns out that Huffman coding is the optimal way to send a message, but only under the conditions where you know beforehand the probabilities of the different outcomes. Uh, they don't change and you're only sending that message once. So. If you run the race 100 times, then all bets are off. If horses get better and then they get worse, then all bets are off. But for a very specific situation, Huffman codes are optimal. And also, in many cases, they're very good. So, uh, and, and the algorithm is simple enough that it's actually a really good exercise for someone learning in computer science. And it's even included in the uh, curriculum for a lot of uh, undergrad, you know, data structures courses. Okay, so that's great, but what is this fraction of a bit business? Because we all know that you could only send a single bit, a zero or a one, but, you know, you can't send a fraction of a bit. What would that mean? So first of all, there's the expected length of a message that could be fractional. So for example, let's say you have a Huffman code where there's an 80% chance that you send a single bit zero, but there's a 20% chance that you need to send two bits. Let's say it's a one zero or a one one. Those are the three possible outcomes. And in this case, the expected number of bits that you're going to send is actually 1.2. And so that's what it'll be on average. But each time you actually do send the message, it'll either be one bit or two bits. So the fraction of a bit doesn't actually happen. That's like saying, you know, the average American has, you know, 2.8 children or whatever it is, something like that. Okay, now the measure of entropy is a theoretical measure that can also be a fractional number of bits. So, for example, let's say I have a fair coin toss. There's a 50% chance I get a heads and a 50% chance I get a tails. My entropy, if I use log base 2 to calculate it is exactly one. So that means that I need one bit to send the answer. And that makes a lot of sense. I can send the bit one if I get a heads and I could send the bit zero if I can get a tails. Uh, but what if I have a weighted coin that's 90% chance of heads and 10% chance of tails? Now, obviously Huffman code, Shannon code doesn't matter. It's not going to help me here. I still need to send a single bit no matter what, to express the answer. You know, I could say the 90% chance thing is a zero and the 10% chance thing is a one, but there's, there's no way, there, there's no improvement on that. Um, but the entropy, if you calculate the entropy for that weighted coin of 90% heads, uh, it actually suggests that I need around 0.47 or about half of a bit to do this. And so I'm like, what? You know, wh what's really happening here? And so the answer is that if I flip this coin many times in a row, uh, there are going to be lots of heads and not so many tails, so lots of ones and not so many zeros. 
And so if I flip it a thousand times, you can imagine, you know, this long list of one, 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 zero, one, 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 zero. And then it's perhaps more clear that I don't need the full thousand bits for that. I can compress it uh, in a way that I can't compress it if they're completely random, you know, 50-50. And so what this is telling us is that in the limit, I'm going to need on average about half a bit per flip. And so that's what it means, you know, very tricky if you ask me, but pretty fascinating. All right, next week I have some travel plans and all that, but shouldn't disrupt the podcast schedule. Uh, not sure what I'm going to do, but join me and we'll learn more stuff like this. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power. She said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna see me shine.